Hi folks, welcome to the World War II Nation podcast with myself, Lawrence Waller, and my colleague, Ross Corbett. In this instalment of the Veteran Podcast Archive, we feature an interview we did a year ago with World War II veteran Captain David Render, a former troop commander of one of Britain's elite tank regiments, the Sherwood Rangers Yeomanry. The SRY went to war on horseback in September 1939, were bloodied in North Africa at Tobruk and El Alamein against Rommel's Africa Corps, and in June 1944 landed on Gold Beach on D-Day and battled their way at the spearhead with the rest of 8th Armour Brigade with the Normandy Bogage into France, Belgium and Holland before reaching Bremen and massing a staggering 30 battle arms along the way. David Render joined the regiment in Normandy on D plus 5 as a 19-year-old second lieutenant fresh from Sandhurst. Due to its length, the interview will be split into three parts. In this very first episode, we discuss David's childhood and growing up in London, being evacuated to the countryside as well as the Blitz. We look at his brother's army service in France around Dunkirk in 1940, before then turning to David's own experience of joining the army, training, and everything that entailed, including learning how to drive a tank, and then finally to that crucial moment when training becomes reality, the crossing of the channel on D plus two to Normandy to join up with his future regiment. junior school in 1938 and went to the senior school. I did a year in the senior school and didn't get on very well with it at all. I got beaten for some trivial thing in my view it was, very unfairly, and I didn't like school at all. I thought it was brutal. And fortunately, because I wasn't doing very well, it was all looking a bit grim and Dad wasn't very pleased with me and that sort of Fortunately, I got rescued by a chap called Adolf Hitler. For the simple reason that he declared war on us, or we declared war on him, I don't know which way around it went, and I got evacuated to Westwood Ho, down in Devon. And the situation was that I quite enjoyed it down there. I was on my bike and I kept chickens and produced eggs for the house and so on and so forth. How old were you at this age? Uh, this time, I was now 14. When I came home in 1940, uh, having been down there in 1939, you see, London here was on fire. I mean, you looked out, of, not out of this window, because you could see, but we lived just up the road here, and um, you could see right across the, the Totters Valley and right over to London. And London was on fire. I mean, the... the Sky at night was all red with all the fires going on and everything else. And, I, and also, of course, a lot of bombs were dropped around here. So I said to my folks that I was not going back to school. Well, of course, they immediately said, what are you talking about? Of course, you've got to go to school. So I said, no, I'm not going back to school. I'm going to be here with you. Well, they were Victorian, and you didn't really argue with Victorian mums and dads. I mean, they laid it all down and you did what you were told. So anyway, eventually I won and I stayed. With, we used to have to do fire watching on mm-hmm. uh, two nights a week. That would mean that we stay awake all night long. And we had to, uh, I joined the Home Guard 
I'd been in the OTC, the Officer Training Corps at Hagen School, um, and was in the band, actually, in order to get a uniform as a kid, you know. But I knew how to fire a three oh three and all that sort of thing, rifle. And so I got some idea what the Army was all about. And my 18th birthday, see, I went down to the Northern Polytechnic in Holloway. I did the, um, I was on a building course. Well, the first year, we all failed completely. I mean, because we'd been watching the bombers coming over. And when we came down to the, to, you know, for the day's work in the, in the school, there'd be a shop on fire or a house on fire. We'd stop eating the squirt with the water and that sort of thing on one or two occasions. Because the firemen were completely shagged out. So, I mean, it was all a bit dodgy. I mean, we had a bomb right outside our house in the, in this lane. You've just driven over and they couldn't run the buses up and down the lane. So anyway, that was how it went on. And I can only say that I decided that my brother was now in the army. He'd, he'd been, we hadn't seen him for years, of course. And he was in France as a lieutenant in charge of 28 lorries collecting petrol from the docks to a dump so that the lorries that belonged to the tank regiment could go and pick up the fuel and refuel the tanks. That was his job, was to ferry the petrol. And when the Germans came at them, he got pushed up to Dunkirk and he said, everybody was standing up to their necks in water. So he said to his blokes, well, this is no bloody good, we won't do this. So with that, uh, he got as much petrol as he could get on one lorry and all his men on another lorry and they set fast to the other 28. There were 30 trucks he had, he said, so the Germans couldn't use them. So they then scarped off down to Saint-Nazaire to get on to a ship called the Lancastria, which was waiting to pick up the bloke to bring him back to England. And he got about halfway out on a little boat, French boat, carrying him out to his ship. And he got about halfway out, and a high 411 bomber came along, and by a fluke, dropped one bomb, which went straight down the funnel. 3,600 blokes were on board of these. The little boat that he was on went back, chucked him off, and went back to pick the men up, but they'd all gone. Couldn't swim, and they got boots on and all that sort of thing. And the ship just went wallop straight down, quicker than flash. Well, it was such a disaster that old Winston Churchill wouldn't tell the people because they were just having to put up with Dunkirk and he thought that they would be upset. So they kept it quiet. But if you look in the paper every now and again, if you take the telegraph, you'll see there's a little memorial from somebody puts in for the Lancastrian. took him five days to get home and then he went out into the desert and he was doing going up and down the road on the, the tracks on the desert to finish the fuel up the same way as he was doing before in France. Anyway, I'll leave it at that for the moment. We go back to now myself. Well, I joined the army in 1942 in, in September on my birthday. My birthday's in September. And in the October, I got called up and um, I went down to Dorset and to the 58th training regiment, well, not 58th first, we went to a, another, like a little um, regiment where you learned how to march and how to be a soldier and salute and so on. That was about six or eight weeks. But the position was that 
we were down at the 58th training regiment where we learned how to drive a tank, how to lay the gun, uh, how to maintain the tank, how to work the radio, do Morse code, how to drill, how to salute. If it moved, we saluted it. If it didn't move, we painted it. We had a very, very, very tough time. Mm. They were busted. And we come home for a 30-hour pass on Saturday afternoon to Sunday night from Bovendon in Dorset on the train and the coach. And we just come home for a few hours in Bovendon. Eventually, a fella I met and got friendly with, uh, in Spottiswoody now, um, eventually he said to me, well, I don't know what you think. He said, well, I don't like this lot at all. He said, let's be officers. It says if you want to be an officer, you, you go and put your name down. I said, yeah, okay, that suits me fine. So with that, we did. And the next thing we knew was that we were seconded, is the word, to the Warminster, where there was um, a war officer, was be they call it, War Office Selection Board. And the War Office Selection Board consisted of our amazement sitting down with a table with tablecloths. And there was an officer in the room. There were about nine of us around the table. And on top of that, we had knives and forks and plates. I mean, we hadn't had that for ages. We had a fork and we had a mess tin. And we'd have marmalade at one end and porridge at the other end and a bit of, you'd have one piece of fresh bread and two pieces of dried bread. And we were always bloody hungry, as you know. There was a man in a white coat serving us. I mean, this was just a job, you know, we more like it. I mean, you know. <laughs> well, because we'd been subjected to a terrific rough treatment, washing under a tap and all this. Be on a charge if you've got dirty flesh, as they call it, if you missed a bit or something like that. So, anyway, what was interesting about it was that there were some one, two blows who held their knife or a thing like a pencil, or they'd hold the fork and they'd be saying, Now, look here, you know, or waving the knife about, or something like that. You may never saw them again, they just disappeared. And if the bloke said, fuck it, or something like that, he just disappeared. There was a series of schemes that we had to do, one of which was that at Warminster there's a river running. By the side of the river there's a big tree, and it goes into a fork. They cut the top of one of the forks, and they put those things that they climb up on a telegraph pole all the way up, we had to go up there with a piece of rope in our hand this long. They put a rope down, right down over the river, and, and there were a load of blankets and I think mattresses. You put the rope over and you let yourself go and you went right down <laughs> over the river. Well, I rather enjoyed it, actually. And I said to the bloke, Christ, the sergeant, I said, yeah, I rather like that. Can I go back and do another one? So he said, oh, you can't on me, he said. So that was it. But there was one bloke who got halfway up the tree and he couldn't go up and he couldn't come down. There was another one we know who got up there and he got the rope over and he couldn't go. 
never saw them again. Let's have a selecting them. And we got through on you know, the Spotify Wood Mile. There were all sorts of people there. We had one of the big problems when we went into the army, first of all, was that I was at this public school where they treated us as rough as hell. And so having the hair cut and this sort of thing didn't matter. I mean, that was how we went, you know. But I tell you what, these bloody East End boys and all the rest of it, because we had all everybody chucked in at the mm. same age. And we were volunteers and they were conscripted. And they couldn't cope with it. They couldn't cope with having to get up at six o'clock in the morning regularly. They couldn't cope with having their hair cut. They didn't like it at all. The food that we were given it was egg and bacon. And if we had fish one morning or something like that, well, they were buggered. They didn't like it. They couldn't cope with it. It was most peculiar to see how the other half lived. Anyway, we go back to the situation whereby we were now transferred to pre-Octave and that was at Aldershot where you've heard of Aldershot mm -hmm. being people being you know killed there or whatever they've done to them. Well it was just as tough for us in those days. And we had to do marching and counter marching and thrusters the same thing over and over again. How to lay the gun, how to drive the tank, how to do this. And then we got transferred to Sandhurst, which is the University of the Army. And we were then, Christ, drill, you've never seen anything like it. The training was ever so tough. For instance, we had to go up to Capelkirig in Wales. And we had to run up Snowdon, which we did, in 110 minutes. With a tin hat and rifle and boots and all the rest of it. And we literally had to run up Snowden. You must have been awfully fit. We were. Coming down was worse. Anyway, the thing was that we also had a lake. They'd have a, a series of boats, like a, a flat board shaped like a boat being planned. The sides were made of canvas. You had to wedge the sides up, carry this bloody thing to the whole lot of them. There'd be 20 boats holding it. We were all young kids, don't forget. We were all 18. And we carried them. And then we had to fix up the boat and then paddle it across this bloody lake. Well, when it went across the lake, they let off huge mine things. It went woof with the water up. Bang. And on one occasion, of course, it was too close to the boat and sank the bloody thing. And they lost two blokes drowned. One of the other things we had to do was to crawl up to a brain gun and a machine gun, and, and it was firing at you, you see, but over your head, and you had to crawl up to it so that you knew what the sound of the gun was like when it fired at you. And then every now and again, the fucking barrel went worn, and, and the rounds went like that, killed one of the boats in front of us. We had another thing where they chucked these phosphorus bombs at us. One bloke got phosphorus on his arm, Screaming in pain, of course, they put him in. They put him in that lake. I didn't do it, but some in a stream to try to hold it down. But he died as a result of it. He lost five chaps in our training out of forty. So we got the idea that our lives weren't worth a toss of a coin, were they? Well, we eventually passed out as lieutenants, second lieutenants, 
And I got shoved up to a place called Reef in Cumberland. And uh, there we had to do various things, like, for instance, they had us in trucks and they'd chuck us out. All you had was a compass and you had to make your way back to on this compass line. You didn't know where you were going, but you just went on this line, which eventually took us back to Reef. And I we did 110 miles over the weekend. That was from Thursday to Monday morning. I literally had boots on with mm. studs in, and I wore the studs clean out, threw the soles and down to my socks when I got back. No food, you had to make your own way with grub and do the best you could. That was quite a sort of tough thing. Another thing we had to do was um, at a pond, an old Valentine tank, and they pulled this bloody tank in, and you had a thing on your nose like that, and a thing in your mouth. You pulled in and you put the lid down, and the water came right away up like that, and you weren't allowed to get out until the red light came on. A lot of people didn't like doing that, but that was the way it was. They taught you what it was like to be in a bloody tank and how to keep your nerves and get out. Yeah. We had to go into a, a room, special room they got, and they said, right, well, put your gas mask on. So we went in there. They said, right, now take the gas mask off. We had to take them off. And, oh, Christ, you know. And then they let us out. But we were all staggering about, you know, so much. That was to show you. Now you know why we're telling you to put a bloody gas mask mm. on. So it worked. It was all yeah, but everything was done in the training in a, in such a way that you realised that what they were saying was about right. I then came out as a second lieutenant, and then suddenly I got the orders to go down to Portsmouth. Well, the position was that I didn't know what, I, what, what it was all about, but Portsmouth I went to. Uh, when we were at Bovingdon, uh, the tanks we learnt to drive and crew were the Valentine, which is 16 tons, three crew, and also the Churchill, which is 38 and a half tons. That Churchill tank, the controls were so heavy that I personally couldn't push the clutch out. I had to put the hands on my knee and press like that with both hands on my knee. And then you had to put your hands around the gear lever and yank it back and you had to get it just at 1,500 revs. Because if it was on, they had a favourite thing, making you go up and over and down the other side of the slope. Well, if you miss it and it whizzed down and it bent the gun or something like that, you were on a charge and generally, oh... So you had to be very careful what you were doing. But those were the, those were the tanks that we learned to drive on in, in the uh, training. Well, the situation was that I was shot down to uh, go down to Portsmouth. And the situation there was that, uh, of course, uh, this was uh, just after D-Day. I didn't know D-Day was going on because D-Day was always a big secret for us. Uh, you have to realise, of course, that D-Day, the atomic bomb and all those sort of things were highly secret. They never told you about them. Anyway, the basis of it was we did, I didn't know what it was all about and I got shot down to Portsmouth. 
But in the meantime, the invasion was taking place. And the tanks that the regiment that I was to join, which incidentally was in uh, 8th Armoured Brigade, and we went in at Gold Beach. That's a bit of a beach there, you see. There were 150,000 men landed on D-Day, and 6,000 ships were involved. And the Sherwood Rangers went in at 7.20 on their... Our, one of our chaps has just died, and he was in the first tank to land. And there was a whacking great bang. And the crew commander and the gunner uh, the, the, in the turret were both killed. Um, the wireless operator, he was a, a, a co-driver co or driver. He and um, the other uh, three, three of them got out. And they were cringing by the tank when there was another whacking great bang. And the tank went on fire. This was an 88 that was shooting up their tank. And with that, the chap he was talking to just disintegrated in a mass of blood. And the other bloke just disappeared. He said, I don't know where he went. I never knew. He, in the meantime, got his legs damaged and got shot back. So his war lasted about 20 minutes. He, however, did get repaired. And he, we, when we got up into Germany, um, then, of course, um, he came back. And uh, his tank ran over a mine at a place called Garlandkirk, and where I lost my tank on mines. Uh, I'll tell you about that in a minute. And um, he lost an eye because um, the chap got out there. Their tank went up on mines, not you know, not very far from where we were. The chap with him was killed, and so on. So it was all a bit dodgy. He got wounded twice. <clears throat> the way it went now. The Sherwood Rangers, they had DD tanks. This is a DD tank. This canvas screen here was pumped up by Rams through this pipe here, which was, in fact, a compressed air pipe, and to make a boat. And there are the propellers on the back. And they came ashore with 38 of them. A squadron was landed dry. B and C came in on swimming tanks. These were highly secret, of course, and the Germans hadn't got a clue anything about them until they suddenly found a load of tanks on their doorstep. The fact of the matter was that it was very successful from our point of view because the Americans and or everybody was told that in order that these bloody great guns that the Germans had got defending the coast there um, could not sink the ships, um, they had to launch these things 6,000 yards off the shore. But 6,000 yards was a terrific distance for a thing like this to go because it only had about 18 inches of freeboard. And the sea was like this. Whoa, you see? And the, the Americans lost all their DD tanks. They all went down completely with the blood. Ours didn't, on the other hand. We apparently um, were fortunate in that our chaps, uh, were, some of them were landed dry. And so that was, that was how the Sherwood Rangers landed. Well, in the meantime, this D.D. Render fella, he is sent down to Portsmouth. And I, went, I met a, a, a chap in a jeep. 
uh, captain, and he took me into a field where there were 16 Cromers, 28 tons tanks, five crew with a 75 millimeter gun on. And he said to me, right, waterproof them. So I said, well, I don't know anything about waterproofing except that we were in, you know, towed into the, that pond I was talking about. So he said, well, we've got putty over there. We've done one. He said, follow that. Fill all the cracks up and so on. Okay. So with that, he said, you've got two days to do it in. So I said, all right. So we then... You have people helping you this time? We so were just... 30 men. Yes. Right, okay. And the I said to the chaps, right, form up in two, form up uh, two ranks, all drivers one pace forward. So with that, all of them step one pace forward. So I said, right, well, you obviously know each other, so because you've been together for a bit. So you pair off and you can pair off into a tank, whatever you like, but do this waterproof. So this chap, the captain, when he went away, he said, right, well, you've got two days to do it in, make a good job of it. Well, I didn't know what he meant by that until, well, the thing was, the next morning he turned up and he said, right, start up the tanks, we want them. So I said, well, I've had two days. He said, bollocks for that. He said, start them up and get cracking. So with that, we did, and we went down to Portsmouth, and we were on this thing, a landing ship tank. It took 30 of our, uh, 16 of our 30-ton tanks. Well, uh, this chap said to me, right, get them on there. He said, you'll find chains on. He said, and bolt them down. So I said, okay. So we went in and we did all this. And he was pissed off. I didn't see him anymore. And so nobody came to talk to me about anything. And I saw a sailor bloke walking about. And I went up to him. Um, could you tell me where we get off? Because, you know, I've put chains on the tanks. He said, get off. He said, what are you talking about? He said, you better look out the porthole. And I looked out the porthole and we were at sea. I said, well, where are we going then? So I said, well, France, of course. Well, that was my invasion of France. I didn't know anything about it. That was D2. And we floated about on D3, and this ship was probably built in America in about five days flat. And when it went over the waves, it was like a snake creaking and grunting and groaning. And I didn't think it was going to make it. And actually, apparently, I don't think the crew did either. They were very nervous about the whole thing. Anyway, we eventually started to get near the shore. We landed actually at four o'clock on D4. And the noise was absolutely terrific. So the battleships firing like hell all around us. Loads and loads of dead blokes in the water floating about. They seem to be in RAF uniform, you know, RAF regiment. Anyway, they just charged straight through those and ran the ship up onto the shore, put the ramp down. The captain came over and said, Get your effing tanks off there. In, in the meantime, we were being strafed by Messerschmitt 109 and came whizzing over and shot at him because we hadn't really got. Totally a superiority. They still flew about. The next thing that happened is that uh, I said to the first tank, right, off he goes. So Danny went down the ramp. Instead of going down the ramp and then onto the shore and getting on the shore like that, he went down and down and down and turned upside down and disappeared completely with the blokes in it. 
He came over and gave me a terrific bollocking and I slipped out and I was frightened to death. I didn't know what he'd have done. So anyway, they then had to pull the ship off and put a sea anchor out. The cable broke and it whipped back and cut all the bloody rails and everything else off the ship on the opposite side from which we were standing, fortunately. Uh, but they got the ship off because the tide was coming in anyway. And we then came in again put the ramp down and the other 15 went off. We went into a field and there we were. Well, this is a picture of Gold Beach where we came in. And you can see there's the, B, the sea there. Mm -hmm. And I took this picture 50 years afterwards in such a way that I'd never seen it before, i.e. with the tide out. And if you look here, you see these slots in the sand. Well, we must have been opposite one of these things. So the ship, of course, was letting the tank down. Instead of going down about 80 foot of water, he went down about 18 foot of water. And that's what did him in. And that was a characteristic of the sea, which sort of rolls the sand around in that area. And if you go back there now, mm. you'd see it there. Well, then what happened was that the tanks were whipped off me very quickly, as were the men. And I then got shot off to the Sherwood Rangers Yeomanry. The Sherwood Rangers, they had head, this is how a regiment was made up, headquarters squadron consisting of the padre and uh, the technical adjutant and the colonel and so on. But the main thing was the three fighting squadrons, A, B and C. We also had a recce unit of 16 Huns, and we also had the KRRC attached to us, who were, went, you see, didn't, we didn't fight at night, um, we were withdrawn at night, and uh, to get more ammo on and give the blokes a rest and so on, and get, uh, get food and bees along. Well, each regiment had in it four troops of tanks, and each troop had in fact got three tanks in each troop at that time. Subsequently we got the 17 pounders so we had four tanks in the troop. So there were about 150 tanks in the regiment roughly. I say roughly because some were there and some weren't. Well the next thing that happened was that I suddenly uh, was sent to on D6 at D5, I was sent to the regiment, and I actually joined the regiment officially on D6. And I was in action um, under command of a troop leader, under training, if you like, uh, of an experienced troop leader. And I had one day, they talk about the Air Force blokes with their pilots having 25 hours or something. Well, I had one day under instruction, and then the next day, D7, I was in charge of the troop. Well, the first thing you've got to consider, we had Shermans, and that's a Sherman there. Was that the first time you'd been in a Sherman? First experience? Of yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd got all the information about it, but I'd never been in one. So I'm now in command of this troop. Well, all I'd say to you is this. Put yourself into my boots. The regiment had been in the desert for two years fighting Rommel up and down the road, and they had beaten him. 
they were then brought back and they did D-Day and all the training that that meant and they survived it and then suddenly in comes a 19-year-old whippersnapper out of school telling them what to do. And the sergeant, for instance, was 40 years old, his mate in the other um, troop was the same. All our troop leaders were young blokes except one who was 28. How would you assert your authority? That long? They hated me immediately. Well, I decided that, because you see, one of the things you've got to realise with a gun is you have to TNA the sights to test and adjust the sight. The way you do that is you put get a bit of grass or string and some knobs of, of grease and you make the cross tees. If you look on the front of a gun barrel, you'll see there are cuts and that's where you lay the cross to TNA the sight. Take the firing pin out inside of the bleacher and then you look through and you wind the thing up until it's actually on the target, on the cross tees, which you put on. In the meantime, you then go to the sites and you alter those at the number of yards, which you get off the map, or you can guess, um, that, that you're away from the target. You lock it up. So therefore, the gun is now firing where the sights say. Well, I said to my blokes in my tank, first of all, I said, well, um, I want to see the gun TNA. So they said, what are you talking about? You know, quite rough. So I said, well, you have what I said. I want you to be gun. I said, I want to do the TNA. Do the TNA. I said, well, it's all right. I said, I don't give a shit that it is all right. But I said, I want to see it. So I went. Well, the fucking gun was only down there. And the sights were up here. So he had to sort of cut his lip. So I said to them, the um, sergeant, have your TNA to sign the science lady? Can I have a look to see what they look like? No, you fucking can't. So I said, well, look, I've just found my bloke, not in the group. I said, my gun is moving up, lighting up. Let's have a look at yours. Well, he wouldn't do it. And from then on, he decided that he was, well, when we went into attack, I'd say, right, come with me, off we go, we've got to go down this bloody road or whatever. And it disappeared. And afterwards, I said, where the fucking was your gas tank? Well, my engine was overheated. I couldn't call it. But I said, I'm sure you got rid of it. Well, he didn't. So the decision was, I then decided that the way it was going to run from then on was, irrespective of the result, I was going to lead the troop and show them I wasn't afraid. And I led the troop at all times and got away with it. Not everybody did. You have to realise that we had, in round figures, 18 young officers to run the regiment. And our casualties were 67 killed and wounded. So consequently, my odds of talking to you now from those days, three and a half to one against on that basis. But the way I ended up was that they respected me and I was okay. And the sergeant gradually came around to a degree, not totally, but to quite a degree he did. But I was fighting two battles, one against our own men, the other one against the enemy, just to give you an idea of what you had to put up.
It's like my dad in the 1418 war. The blokes dug trenches to hide from each other and they shelled each other with a thousand guns a mile. And they completely fucked up the ground at the back of both and they couldn't get the ammo and the stuff up. If a bloke fell in a water in a pond which had been formed by a shell and so the, his mate went to pull him out, the officer pulled the trigger out and shot the bloke. And he said, let that be a lesson to you other buggers not to do that. Because you might lose two men instead of one. And they did do that, actually. So somebody came up with a marvellous idea of laying, laying railway lines down. And that's what my dad was doing. We do hope you have found this episode of interest. Parts two and three will be released very shortly as we follow the rest of David's and the Sherwood Rangers' journey, battling their way through Normandy, France, Belgium, Holland, and eventually into Germany. We also discuss the bitter reality of life inside a Sherman tank during this conflict, the tactics employed by both sides in the ensuing battle, a dangerous friendly fire incident by allied Hawker typhoons, and much, much more. If you know somebody, a relative or friend perhaps, who served during the Second World War and is willing to talk with us about their experience, please do feel free to get in contact. You can email us at lawrence at worldwatonation.com or ross at worldwatonation.com. Thanks for listening and all your support. Thank you.